Listen to the Word of God. And to the angel in the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you do not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers... I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So reads the Word of God. Through our formal vision prayer, and if you don't know what that is, I'd encourage you to go on the website. It's it's prominently displayed there. And I'll quote from it in just a moment. But through our formal vision prayer here at Grace Church of DuPage, we're praying that God will enable us essentially, and in a summary fashion, to put it clearly, we're praying that God would enable us to experience the fullness of all that Jesus died for the church to experience this side of heaven. That we want to understand and enter into the fullness of the gospel. The fullness of new life in Christ. The fullness of our salvation corporately experienced in the church. That's what we long to pursue. But what we realize along the way, because we've been praying this for many years now, and I think you do see it on the screen in front of you at the moment, We've been praying this for many years now. We note that many things can get in the way, can't they? Many things get in the way of experiencing the fullness of what Jesus died for us to experience in this world. There are many, many obstacles along the road to our becoming what we're asking and seeking and knocking for God to make us, namely a community of worshipers that bears much fruit as we live and proclaim the gospel with authenticity and passion. Basically, though, all of these obstacles can be grouped under three broad headings. They can be grouped under the headings of the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's where the obstacles come from to us experiencing what we're praying to God that we would experience. The devil is that powerful, vicious spirit enemy of our souls. The flesh is our own selfish desire for autonomy and self-gratification. The world 
is the collective expression of self-gratification and autonomy that exudes from the flesh of all those around us, near and far. That's where the stumbling blocks come from. Internally, externally, and from the unseen world. Now, it's patently obvious to us, or at least it should be, how these three conspire against our tasting of all that God intends the local church to be. With all the merits of the gospel, every spiritual blessing being ours in the heavenly places, Ephesians 1, all things that pertain to life and godliness being ours in Christ Jesus, 2 Peter 1. With all the merits of the gospel being ours, it is still within the power of this rebellious trio, the world, the flesh, and the devil, to make us feel deprived in this world, like we're missing out on something if we don't join in with uh, power and prominence and self-importance and the pursuit of pleasure that we perceive out there in the world. These three, the world, the flesh, and the devil, can actually begin to convince us that gospel living causes us to lose out on something that really is worth having. That's tragic, wouldn't you agree? They can actually begin to convince us that gospel living, with all it includes, all of the blessings of God in the heavenlies, all that pertains to life and godliness being ours in Him, these three can actually convince us that gospel living causes us to lose out on something that's really worth having. Well, with that introduction this morning, Jesus has a word for us today through the church in Pergamum, a word for which I believe we can be very grateful. It's a word we need to hear in the midst of an understanding that that is what we have, and yet this is the world we live in. And somehow, even as recipients of God's grace, we are still vulnerable daily, moment by moment through the day, to the persuasive power of the world and the flesh and the devil. So let's look into this passage of Scripture, verses 12 through 17 of Revelation 2. We're going to look at it under those same four stages that we're learning or that we are using for each letter. The ascription this time is verse 12. The assignment, or the assessment is verses 13 to 15. The assignment, verse 16, and the assurance, verse 17. So let's look at the text, verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, Jesus identified himself, how? As the one who has the sharp, two-edged sword. We talked a bit about that sword as we looked at the vision in chapter 1. It, it, it comes up in verse 16 of chapter 1, describing Jesus. It comes back here in this letter a few verses later in verse 16 again. So from 1.16 and 2.16, we know that this sword was protruding from Jesus' mouth, confirming that it represents His Word. And we've seen that at other places in Scripture. Ephesians 6 is a familiar reference identifying the Word of God as a sword. So is Hebrews 4. We made reference to it as we looked at the vision 
Hebrews 4 says the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's what the Word of God does in us. Verse 13 from Hebrews 4 continues on with some additional features. The writer of Hebrews says, and no creature, listen to this, it plugs in well with Pergamum, and no creature is hidden from its sight, the Word of God, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. There's the implications of the Word of God being sharp and penetrating into the hearts and minds of men. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, I do need to point out that both of these references in Ephesians 6 and Hebrews 4 use that word machaira, that, that small two-edged sword that was more like a dagger. Here in Revelation 2, it's ramphaya. It's a different word. It, it, it's that long, broad military sword that was used in battle. But having said that, I don't believe this changes the image substantially at all. Here in Revelation 2, and as in Revelation 1, it's, it's intentionally a symbol of judgment, not just of the, the particular qualities that the Word of God has, but the judgment of God coming through the Word of God, and I think that big double-edged sword makes some sense here. In context, this sword is identified then as God's looming judgment. That's the picture here in Revelation 2 that it generates. It really recalls Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4, He shall strike the earth with the rod of His mouth. So this image in some ways is anchored into the prophet Isaiah. If his word isn't honored, Jesus is saying, he'll be the one with whom the wayward in Pergamum must reckon. That's the point. And only through repentance we can see in this letter can their judgment be averted. Otherwise, they will feel the judgment of God through the representative double-edged sword that comes from his mouth, the word of God coming to bear on them and holding them accountable. So if his word isn't honored and upheld, he'll be the one to, with whom the wayward and Pergamum must reckon, and only through their repentance can judgment be averted. Let's move into this next section, the assessment. With that said, still, Jesus knew that they were up against it in Pergamum. They had a tough assignment there in Pergamum. This wasn't a really good or easy place for the church to exist and to operate. He called this place, Pergamum, the place where Satan dwells, where his throne is. Mentioned twice in verse 13, the place where Satan has his reign, the place where he has his residence. This is serious for the church in Pergamum. What this refers to specifically, where Satan dwells, where his throne is, the specific referent is uncertain, but I have to hasten to add to that. It's uncertain not because it's hard to find basis for it there in Pergamum. It's, it's hard because it would be tough to decide which option is most in view. So we need to take a little time to talk about 
the city of Pergamum and life there. Pagan worship sites abounded in that city. There was competition, we've mentioned a couple of times now, between Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum to see which one was the leading city in Asia. But there was no mystery about which of these three cities was first with regard to religious life. Pergamum owned that honor outright and unrivaled. Asclepius was probably the most prominent false religion in Pergamum, a healing cult, not unlike Lourdes in present-day France. The symbol for Asclepius is still familiar to us today. It was the serpent. It was a healing cult, supposedly. So the symbol was a serpent, which also then became the symbol of the city of Pergamum because of its association with the temple of Asclepius. And this symbol of the the snake on the pole, reminiscent of Numbers 21 and Moses uh, uh, using that symbol to save Israel from the snake bites, according to God's plan, it's still the symbol for medicine today. The symbol for medicine is rooted more to Numbers 21, but there is this well-established connection to the healing cult of Asclepius and Pergamum. That said, surely it also reminds both Christians and Jews of Satan in the garden. So the snake is not just a healing image. It also has other connotations to it, and it did there in Pergamum. On the hill behind the city, there was also an altar to Zeus, But that hill and the town itself were littered with many other worship sites to pagan deities, among them Demeter, Athena, Dionysius. It was the center of religious life in the Roman Empire at the time or in the Asian province. The people were perhaps proudest, though, of the fact that Pergamum had been designated the temple warden for Roman emperor worship in that region. They were the first city of Asia to have a temple dedicated to a Roman emperor, Augustus, whose reign began in the B.C. years and transitioned into the new era. They were the first city in Asia to have a temple dedicated to him, and then another followed later for Trajan, whose reign began very late in the first century and transitioned into the second. That meant something. The fact that they were the temple warden for emperor worship, given that uh, refusal to take part in the official cult was considered high treason at the time, the Christians' refusal to participate in emperor worship was the most likely basis for Jesus' reference here to this being Satan's dwelling, Satan's throne. This is a new and particularly egregious form of pagan idolatry that's going on, deifying the emperors in the Roman world. They had stood firm in the face of this. Yet, verse 13, Jesus could say, you hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith. Satan dwells in your city, and I know that. I I know what you're facing, Pergamum, yet you hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. 
So this means one of their number, Antipas, had actually lost his life for his faith. And yet they had stood firm in their trust in Christ. That's no small matter, is it? That's no small victory. We don't know the details of Antipas's death or even the charges against him, but we do know that he was a martyr for Christ. And by the way, just an aside, this word martyr is an interesting one. I made reference to it when we saw it in chapter 1 because it was used there to describe Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 5, he was a faithful witness. But about this time in history, it began transitioning to mean not just a faithful witness, which was its original meaning. It also then became, came to mean someone who bears witness by the giving of his life. That's still familiar to us today, but sometime later this meaning stretched to include someone who was willing to die for a cause. He could also be called a martyr, and now it's stretched in the more modern world to even include a derogatory reference to anyone who thinks he's suffering for a cause, and now we use martyr in sort of a slangy or um, vernacular way to talk about people who are insincere and perhaps overly conscious of the hardships that they themselves face for one reason or another. Martyr covers all of these. But Antipas here was a faithful witness, just like Jesus in chapter 1, verse 5. And it's worth talking about this word martyr a bit because some actually think that this right here in Revelation 2 could be the first occasion of this word being consciously used of one who laid down his life on account of witness to Christ. This may be the first time it has the death element included in it. Still, it can't have been easy to hold fast to their faith under the circumstances that were going on there in Pergamum. Agreed? That would have been a tough place. All of this pagan idolatry surrounding you, and now a brother losing his life because of his faith in Christ. Jesus affirms them for standing firm in their faith. As a church, the believers in Pergamum did well in that they held fast to Jesus' name, he says, and did not deny his faith. I love that. Even when Antipas lost his life. All of this is true. And yet, Jesus still had a problem with this church. This isn't like Smyrna, where he doesn't mention anything bad. Even though this church is suffering and enduring... Jesus still had a problem with them. Some among them were, were leading them to embrace the world in ways that were just entirely unacceptable. Look at verse 14. But I have a few things against you, Jesus says. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might not eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. We need to remind ourselves of the story of Israel as they're nearing the end of their wilderness wanderings recorded in Numbers 22 through 24. Balak, king of Moab, felt threatened by Israel as they were moving toward occupying the land, moving past Moab. So he sought to hire a rogue prophet, Balaam, to curse Israel. 
Well, Balaam told Balak right from the start that he could only say what God allowed him to say, but Balak hired him anyway, and they went three rounds trying to curse Israel, and all that Balaam could do was end up blessing them three times, and it, and it really irked Balak, king of Moab. Later on in that story, though, and there's details there that are worth reading, read Numbers 22 through 24, in fact, 22 through the end, because it's not until Numbers 31, far after this happens, that the reader is clued into the fact that Balaam also had some more conversation with Balak. Namely, he told them that if he could entice Israel to sin, then the curse of God would have, have to fall on them. And by the time you get to that in the text, you've already read about that happening. Now it's laid at the feet of Balaam in Numbers 31. Moses records in Numbers 25 that Israel engaged in sexual immorality and pagan worship with Moabite women, thus earning God's judgment. The legacy of Balaam is a despicable one. He wanted the money that was going to be paid to him for cursing Israel. God harnessed his mouth and yet he still found a way to bring the judgment of God upon his people. Well, evidently, some in Pergamum were doing similar things in the church. Likely distorting the clear teaching of God's Word toward, toward helping Christians feel a little better about participating in some of the pagan rituals that go on or went on in that city. Maybe even the emperor worship, because there would have been severe consequences for not. Verse 15, add to that, so also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We mentioned when this was brought up back uh, in the letter to Ephesus that we don't know really anything about them. There's a lot of guessing that it might have been a cult under the leader Nicholas, and there's some reasons why that's a possibility, but none of them can be substantiated. So we really have to continue saying we don't know much about the teaching of the Nicolaitans, but this passage here and its close association with the teachings of Balaam make it seem like there was some connection between that, the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Maybe it had some sort of a common root or, or error. But bottom line, the church was conforming to its culture under the teaching or influence of some within the body. And they were doing so at the points of greatest offense to God and the gospel. Following after other gods and participating in the sexual rituals that often accompanied that. And I say the points of greatest offense because throughout the Old Testament, that description is what was used in order to grasp the seriousness of idolatry, of worshiping false gods. It was called spiritual adultery. We are in covenant union with God as not just our king and lord, but our, our husband. And now we're following after other gods. The correlation between spiritual idolatry and Sexual immorality offending the marriage covenant is well established in Scripture. So the church in Pergamum was being led into conformity with its culture at the points of, two, of, of greatest offense to God and the gospel. 
This whole scenario tends to remind us of Paul's letters to Corinth, and we really could take some time in Corinth to read about how you address a culture that's saturated with this sort of practice and a church that's being drawn into it. So if you think, wow, this sounds familiar, it is. When we went through uh, 1 Corinthians a few years ago, we saw the life of the church and uh, how Paul addressed this uh, with extended argument moving through that lengthy letter. We can tend to miss the fact, though, that it's not just the ancient church that deals with this. It's not just Corinth. It's not just Pergamum. It's the fact that we're still subject to these same sorts of temptations even in Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches in our own day. Nick made reference to this and prayed for it. I'm so thankful. Have you been tracking with what's being uncovered and only now beginning to be addressed in the Southern Baptist Convention? It's disturbing. It's tragic. It's exceedingly hard to read the reports of the long-term, decades, denial and the covering up of activities just like Jesus is addressing here in Revelation 2. This problem isn't confined to first century churches. So what should be done when this happens in the church? When we're holding fast to faith in Jesus, but are also beginning to give an ear to twisted teaching that warms us up toward conforming to the evil that saturates the world around us. What do we do when the obstacles move in and dwell among us? Well, Jesus' assignment is simple and clear and direct here in verse 16. Now we move into our third heading. His assignment is simple and clear and direct. It, it, it's not a three-step process like it was back in verse 5 to the church at Ephesus. It's just one. Repent. Repent. Just turn around. By God's grace, through faith, turn around and believe the truth, meaning obey the truth that Scripture teaches. The only alternative to that turning around is to face the judgment of God so vividly described in His Word, not least right here in this text with the image of the sword. Jesus says here, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. I'll war against whoever's doing this to the church. I'll war against this modern day, first century, Balaam. It's so interesting to read how otherwise respected men and women in the Southern Baptist Convention made themselves comfortable with covering over the events that were taking place there. And friends, I want to make it clear this morning, I'm not pointing to them as though they're somehow more evil than the rest of us. We point to that scenario to show how easy that is for that kind of teaching to seep into the church. We ought to be humbled. We ought to 
tremble in fear and be warned and look all the more closely at the Word of God. Submit, submit it to the Spirit to hear the Word of God and to obey it. It breaks our hearts. We lament for our brothers and sisters in Christ and we pray for them. We particularly pray for those who were victimized and not listened to for so long. But we don't pray or respond in self-righteousness. We grieve. And we say, apart from this word from Jesus alone, there but for the grace of God go we. God help them. God help us. This is the day we live in. We're not free from the temptations that were so vividly descriptive in Pergamon. God forbid that Jesus would come to us soon and war against us with the sword of his mouth. Interesting historical fact before we move on to the assurance. We read in Joshua 13, real-time engagement as Israel moved into the land. Balaam was killed with the sword by the people of Israel, wrote Joshua. Verse 22 of chapter 13 was killed with the sword by the people of Israel as they were receiving their inheritance in the land. I don't believe that was coincidental. It ties in directly with what we're reading this morning. Verse 17. Jesus' word of assurance has some interesting images in it that we need to take just a few minutes to unpack. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it, says Jesus. What is he talking about here, this hidden manna, this white stone? Manna, as we know, was the food supernaturally supplied by God for Israel during their exodus. Again, drawing our attention to the days of Balaam. Here, I believe, manna points to something very related but a bit different. Spiritual manna, perhaps, we might say. Here, I believe, manna points, or points to our partaking of God in Christ to the point of utter and unending satisfaction in Him. I think that's what's being promised to the church here. We'll take a moment to establish that. I believe manna points to our partaking of God in Christ to the point of utter and unending satisfaction with Him. I'm saying we won't need that adulterous food sacrifice to idols to satisfy us, physically or spiritually. Jesus Himself said in John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger. A few verses later in that same discourse, he added, I am the bread that came down from heaven. I'm the manna. And on that basis, I think that's what's being talked about here. Jesus meets our need here and now, and if we endure, if we overcome, if we conquer which just means if we listen to the instruction, if we have ears to hear the word of the Spirit and respond by faith and obedience, this is what's promised. 
He meets our needs here and now. And if we endure, if we overcome, if we conquer, we'll feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb when this distasteful world finally comes to an end. This, I believe, is why Jesus calls this hidden manna. I think we dine on it at that time. I think it's looking forward to that day. But it's still hidden. We don't yet see it. It's promised, but it's still future. So when Jesus said this to Pergamum, and I would say still now today, it's hidden. It's hidden manna. It's future manna. It's a dining and feasting with and in and on Christ in a unique way as we enter into his presence. And that at this point in this letter, that's the image we pick up from this description. How about this white stone with a new name written on it? What this means, folks, is really a mystery. Some say we can't even know what it means with certainty. I just want to read a, a brief paragraph from a, a, a highly respected commentator who gives us a little taste of the fact that it's tough to know what the white stone means, all right? Listen to this, and I'll just tell you, this is Leon Morris, one of my favorites. He says, at least seven suggestions have been made with some confidence. And then he runs through them a sentence at a time. One arises from legal practice where a member of a jury who was for acquittal handed in a white stone. And, and if you were for uh, conviction, it would have been a black stone. It's how you vo voted as a member of a jury. A second view sees a reference to reckoning since white stones are often used in calculations. A third idea is that the white stone is the symbol of a happy day, something like our red letter day. Along somewhat the same lines is that uh, that which sees the stone as an amulet bringing good luck. A more prosaic suggestion is that the white stone represented a ticket to bread and circuses. So it was a, a, a rite of passage, an entry like a ticket. A sixth suggestion arises from a rabbinic speculation that when the manna fell from heaven, it was accompanied by precious stones. That's historically demonstrable, not that that actually happened, but that was a rabbinic speculation. And that comes up because of its proximity, this white stone, to the hidden manna in this verse. So that brings that view to the fore. The seventh view is that the reference is to a stone in the breastplate of the high priest with a name of one of the tribes written on it. A variant sees a reference to the Urim, one of those stones that was used to discern the will of God. Some of these may legitimately be criticized on the ground that, they either, that either the stone is not white or it had no inscription, but none of them carries complete conviction and then Morris finishes saying, we simply do not know what the white stone signified, though clearly it did convey some assurance of blessing. I agree with that, but I think we can also know a bit more about it from this text, and I want to mention some of that right now. And there's a, I think there'll be a slide that gives three possibilities. I want to work through that and just give you a little bit on each of the three, that I think these aren't three different possibilities now like we're continuing the list of seven. These are three things I think we can actually know about this stone just by looking at the text. Clearly, I believe, the white stone conveys assurance of acquittal to pick up on that element. Since it's given 
to conquerors, those who won't face judgment. They have been set free at the court of heaven. Jesus won't war against them with the sword of his mouth. That's one thing I think we can know. A second thing, clearly, the white stone also conveys assurance of identification with God somehow. Intimacy with Him, we might say. Even some sort of implied ownership by Him. That comes to us in the text. Just by how it appears in context, I believe. Think of adoption here, perhaps. This body has been richly blessed by that practice. Bringing children into our families and therefore into this family giving them a new name that entitles them to a new identity and a sure inheritance, not necessarily meaning financial wealth, but but a legacy, a, a new circle of belonging, we might say, that enriches them personally, relationally, spiritually. We see that here for those who receive the white stone. That it conveys assurance of identification with God, of belonging to Him. But beyond this, I think it shows there's a third thing we can see in this white stone. It it could be an invitation to the marriage supper where the hidden manna will be revealed. That was one of the uses of a white stone, that form of invitation. And even if that's not precisely what it meant, it's certainly a justifiable reference from, from this text. So again, they're not explicit details, but I think they're things that as we just listen to what this text is telling us, These are three things that this white stone could very easily mean. Regarding the new name on it, we need to take a moment on this as well because this is, I believe, helpful and encouraging. Regarding the new name on it that no one knows except the one who receives it, I actually think this is Jesus' own name. That's the name of God. If you've got the text open in front of you still, as I hope you do, right? Still open in front of you? Probably on the next page, chapter 3, verse 12. Look at... One verse there from Jesus' letter to Philadelphia. The one who conquers, he says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. I look forward to talking about that when we look at that letter. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. And I will write on him my own new name. Compare that with chapter 19, verse 11, if you want to flip over and look at that. In the passage on the heels of mentioning the marriage supper of the Lamb, then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. Similar theme to right here in Pergamum. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Recognize that from chapter 1? This is Jesus. And on his head are many diadems. Of course there are. King of kings. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. These are places where names are important in Revelation. So what we have here in chapter 2, is that the conquerors in Pergamum get a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. 
Then the conquerors in Philadelphia have Jesus' own name, among others, written on them, and Jesus, when he returns, will have a name written that no one knows but himself. What do we make of this? Three different names? I don't think so. I don't think these are different names or or different expressions. I think they're all the same. I think they're all drawing our attention to our bond, our union, our belonging to him. We receive a new name from the Father. It, it, It resonates with Ephesians 3, 15, where the one from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. And we have an inheritance in him. We belong to him. That's a beautiful description. It's opaque for some reason. I suspect that it had immediate and clear meaning to the church in Pergamum. We have to work a little harder these days. But essentially, we're being told in verse 17 here exactly what we're being told in the final verses of each of these seven letters. This is just the unique metaphor or set of metaphors that John is using to communicate that, or that Jesus did as he was dictating these letters. So what do we make of all of this today? Bottom line, my friends, bottom line, we're not deprived of anything by turning our backs on the supposed pleasures of the world. Agreed? We're not deprived of anything by turning our backs on the supposed pleasures of the world. If we think of what Verse 17 gives us, in the wake of the charge that Jesus has given to this church and our resonance with that charge still in our day, we are not deprived of anything by turning our backs on the supposed pleasures of this world. We're not missing out on anything desirable when it feels like we don't fit in here. We're not losing anything worth having. And this is not simply because serving self, in serving self there's no salvation, although that's true. And it's not simply because this world in its present form is passing away, although that's also true. Especially noted in the assurance of this letter, there's an intimacy in our relationship with God that we need to embrace here. It's not just the negative we need to leave behind. It's not just repentance and turning away from that which has drawn our eye. It's what we see when we turn that verse 17 gives us. There's an intimacy with God in our relationship with Him described here. A deeply satisfying intimacy Richly personal, inner circle, secret-keeping type intimacy that's only available as we turn our backs on the world, the flesh, and the devil in favor of uncompromised, undiluted, unmixed, singularly devoted purity in our walk with Jesus. That's what the church is called to in this day, and it's richly rewarded by our King. The only alternative we have to that is to be at war with Him. We're either with Him or we're against Him, and He against us. And I don't think we want to be there. 
I think the words of John written to his church in 1 John 2 give us with greatest clarity what we need this morning. That's 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17. It's only a couple or three pages back in your Bible, I'm sure, if you wanted to look at it. Here's what we're told. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You feel his opposition. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride and possessions is not from the Father. It's from the world. And this world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. There's our charge this morning. Through the pen of John. Like Jesus said in Matthew 5, you're the light of the world. There's your status. There's who you are, church. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. We shouldn't be envying or imitating the world. The world should be envying us and wanting what we have. That only happens as the church repents and presses into this life that God has given us. It happens as we hunger after the hidden manna and long for the white stone of identification with our Savior. When we do that, the world looks at the church and says, I don't know what kind of riches you can amass out here that equal that. We may still live here where Satan has his throne, but let's never let this environment start pressing us into its mold. My friends, let's look to the hidden manna. Let's look to the white stone. Let's cling to him who promised such a blessed inheritance for those who conquer. And if you will, let's pray now together. As we pray, the musicians can return to the platform and the communion servers join me at the front. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these letters to the churches from Jesus. We are in desperate need of hearing them. We hear from this very passage that the message that was relevant in the first century to an Asian city is relevant to us right here where we live today. Father, the temptations of the world still creep in and impede the path of the church toward becoming that which Jesus died for them to become. And I pray, Lord God, that all of us who are hearing this charge today would collectively, with one mind and one heart, as one body, repent and turn away from the allure of the world, from the draw of the flesh, 
from the schemes of the enemy by faith in the crucified, risen, ascended, and returning Lord Jesus Christ. And enable us, Lord God, enable us in this place to know the fullness of what Jesus died for us to experience. And, oh, Father, I pray that you would do that in Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches everywhere, wherever Christ is exalted. May your church be on that pursuit, so desperately needed in our day, the light on the hill that points people to Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.